0: Hey, welcome to Progression Success in the Music Industry. I'm your host, Travis Ference, and this is episode number 85. This week, I sit down with mastering engineer Justin Perkins, and we get into stuff like being a self-taught engineer, the dangers of a heavily limited mix ref, how he chooses a mastering chain, and so much more both from the business and technical side of things. So definitely stick around for that. But first, are you falling victim to the tyranny of the urgent? Are you always working on something, but yet still texting your clients or collaborators and saying, Hey, sorry, didn't finish this one today. It's coming at you tomorrow. This is all too common in the music industry. I've heard people in sessions complain about projects taking forever to get finished. And as a staff engineer at a studio, I'd always think, how do these people even get work? Why is everyone so undependable? Then, several years later, as a freelancer working every gig I could get my hands on, I started sending those same emails and text messages every day. It's because we're all under attack from the urgent and we're losing perspective of what's important. So what's urgent, right? Well, by definition, it's something requiring immediate action or attention, which is basically none of the things we do in the music industry. But yes, there are upload deadlines or live events that bring a sense of actual urgency to a project, but 90% of us are not involved in projects like that. Most of the deadlines that we all deal with on a daily basis are arbitrary dates chosen by other people involved in the project, right? This happens to me all the time. Somebody needs a song mix. They need it turned around in 48 hours. We rush through it. We barely do any revisions. We never get to, like, step away and actually have a fresh perspective on it. And then they tag me on Instagram when they release it nine months later. I'll never understand that one. And that's a perfect example of this false sense of what is urgent versus what is important, right? Finishing that song right now because it's the current favorite and it's what everybody is most excited about at the moment is doing what's urgent. Doing what's important is finishing that song properly and giving it the time that it deserves. So here's my advice to the music industry on how to handle this whole urgent versus important thing. First, we need to learn how to identify what is important. Is anything on your to-do list actually urgent, like by the definition of requiring immediate action or attention? Are there consequences attached to not making this deadline? If so, that is what is actually important, and that's what needs to be done. And this is probably the only time what's urgent is also what's important, and it's still going to be fairly rare for most of us. So if there are no actual real-life pressing deadlines with consequences, then what is important is what you've committed to, Did you commit to finishing a production this week? Did you commit to delivering a mix? Maybe there's something you wanted to do for your business on a particular day. Or maybe you committed to going to your son or daughter's recital in the evening. Whatever it is, that's what should be important for that day. So number two is prioritize what is important to you and your career and do that thing first. I talk about this all the time. Sometimes those things will be the same thing. Sometimes they will be different. Some days you'll be more committed to your career. Some days you'll be more committed to yourself. Something I like to do every night is prioritize my tasks for the next day. So I know that I'm working on what's important. This is a great way to make sure that you're following through on your commitments to the best of your ability. And remember, it's okay if you don't always hit your targets. It's okay to tell somebody, hey, I didn't get to it, as long as you're trying to focus on what's important. And if you're doing that, you'll likely be keeping your word and your integrity far more than most of the people in this industry that are running around chasing what's urgent. Finally, avoid putting yourself in the position of being distracted by urgency. Think about it this way. If you were trying to stop eating sweets, you would probably want to avoid getting your morning coffee at the best bakery on your street, right? So with that in mind, you might not want to check your email right before you sit down to start work for the day. Now you might say, Travis, what about all the urgent emails that I need to address? And that question is exactly why you don't want to check your email before you start working on what's important. I don't remember where I heard this, but I heard somebody describe an email inbox as other people's to-do list for you. Think about that for a second. That might be the best description of an inbox ever, especially if you're in like the corporate setting. But even all those sales emails or social media notifications, those are just companies giving you a to-do item that is, hey, go look at this thing for a little while. Absolutely everything in your email inbox can appear to be urgent, so you're better off just to avoid it altogether. And even if you aren't checking your email, maybe you're going to the studio or the office and you run into a collaborator and then a five-minute chat later and you're opening something that you all are working on and bumping off what's important. This is how we all get to the end of the day and we have to send that email or text message saying, hey, sorry, I didn't get to this today. I'm going to try to do it tomorrow. So before we go, bonus tip. Obviously, email is essential to the way that we all do business in this industry. But it's also a very tempting place to get knocked off course and to chase urgency. So to combat this, try this. Check your email at set points during the day and batch it all together so that you aren't always shifting your brain back and forth from work mode, email mode, work mode, email mode, right? So then while you're checking your email, this is the power move. If there's an actionable task that's related to an email, say a mix or production note, copy and paste those out of the email and put them somewhere else. I use a software called Notion that I built a whole project management system out of, but it's not important what you use. What's important is that it's a controlled environment in which you decide what tasks are being presented to you. Now, when it comes time for that mix revision or whatever to take its place in the spotlight of important, you can reference it in a place where you won't be bombarded by urgency. So that's it for today. Remember, always be aware of when you are under attack from urgency and straying from the path of what is important. And if you do that, you'll be looking at a long career in this industry. Today's guest is Madison, Wisconsin-based mastering engineer, Justin Perkins. Justin currently works out of his studio, Mystery Room Mastering, where he's worked on projects for artists such as The Replacements, Jason Mraz, Buster Rhymes, and the North Mississippi All-Stars, as well as countless independent artists from around the world. He's also worked at Butch Vig Smart Studios, actively played in numerous bands, and written various articles for the Pro Audio File. So it's going to be a fun hang today. Welcome to the show, Justin Perkins. Hey, how's it going?
1: It's going great. Thanks for having me. I'm a a big fan of your podcast because I've had more time to listen to things lately, and uh, so I'm happy to be talking to you in real life.
0: Oh, nice. Well, I I appreciate that listening and taking the time to come and hang. Um, We met through another podcast, kind of, Working Class Audio Forum. We were chatting about hard drives and backup, and I was like, I want to talk to this guy.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I've been a big fan of Matt's podcast, too. I mean, I... You know, I do mastering, so I sit in a room by myself. I'm fairly introverted, too, so I feel like listening to people's podcasts is kind of like my way of hanging out. And I need to give my ears a rest for music anyway, so it's nice to just listen to talking instead of music. And there's usually something to learn, and you get to know certain people. So I'm just a huge fan of these podcasts, and uh, especially ones like yours and Matt's, where they come out on a regular schedule, and it's well-produced and easy to listen to. So, yeah, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I feel like people, when it comes to podcasts, people like either really love podcasts or people are like, I hate podcasts. Isn't that really an (laughs) in-between?
1: Well, when I first heard about Matt's, I'm like, why would I want to listen to a podcast of other engineers just talking about, you know, it sounded boring, but I started listening to a few episodes of people whose names I recognized just because people kept talking about it. I'm like, oh, this is actually really great because they're not talking about gear so much. It's just personal stories. And then I got really addicted to it. I mean, you, now even if it's someone I've never heard of, I'll listen to it because I feel like there's always something to learn. Whether it's, you know, philosophical life stuff, which studio insurance to get for your equipment. Any, you know, there's always something to learn. So I listen to these all the time. So,
0: totally, they kind of fill the gap of like you know, going to the bar after a session or staying late in the live room. You know, getting lost, chatting with your buddies. So. You know, I'm biased. I have a podcast, so obviously i'm a, I'm a podcast fan, but
1: right. That must keep you busy. I mean, I, I had a good rotation going. And then when I moved from Milwaukee to Madison, I was commuting a lot more until I officially moved my studio. So I was burning through my usual circle of podcasts. And then I think someone I knew or followed was on your podcast, and I listened to it, and then I' now I listened to everyone
0: amazing. Well, I appreciate it. So then you know how this all goes. We got to do a little bit of your origin story. What's the uh, the short story of how you got into music and how you ended up here?
1: Uh, the short story is like a lot of people, while I was in bands, even going back to like late grade school, early middle school, you know, Nirvana, Nevermind had just hit. So that was basically music I felt like I could play with my friends compared to, you know, like Vanilla Ice and Poison and Motley Crue. That was just. Didn't sound like something that a person could create on their own, someone that's, you know, in grade school. Yeah. But Nirvana came along, wow, this is pretty raw and simple, let's do it. And uh, out of necessity, I had to learn how to record it too, because back then, you know, this is early 90s, well, early to mid 90s, and there was a lot of studios, but they were pretty busy. They didn't want middle school kids coming in to make noise. You know, Nirvana was already considered noise, so if you could imagine some grade school kids trying to sound like Nirvana was probably terrible. But anyways, I learned how to record on, you know, a four track, you know, cassette, four track Tascam, pretty classic story. Yeah. Um, in my dad's basement and then other bands would start to ask me to record them. So I'd either go to their basement or do it in my dad's basement, uh, that kind of thing. And eventually, you know, just started to get a lot of clients through, you know, I remember when it went from like, just my high school to like a high school, you know, like 15 miles away, a totally different city that felt really kind of special, you know, like maybe I could do this, but it never really seemed like a career. But then, you know, then I started working at a studio in Green Bay, Wisconsin, that was known for recording a lot of great, you know, rock and punk albums that just sounded better than they should for where it was <laughs> and the cost. So. Eventually got to work there. I didn't directly get hired, but I got the invite to bring my clients there and do his kind of overflow stuff. And nice. really got a lot of practice recording all types of music, from polka to metal to everything, basically, in my opinion. And then finally got the invite to come down to Madison and work at Smart Studios, which was owned by Butch Vig. Um, it was kind of a strange time because it was 2006, six seven. You know, the music industry and economy are kind of heading downhill. I remember, I remember some of the older engineers at Smart, not Butch, but some other ones, they were like, man, we just can't get work and whatever. And I'm like, now looking back, I can see that maybe if you're middle-aged uh, or in your 40s, 50s, you don't really want to take a big pay cut to keep working. But as a young, early 20s, I was like, man, there's tons of work. You know, I can go for 20 hours a day. And I did. So I got to work at smart studios and, you know, work with even more bands. And uh, that's kind of, hopefully that was short enough, but basically being in bands and then, you know, eventually playing in bands got to be in the way. So I basically, you know, I try, I've I've had to jump back into playing live music here and there, but basically I don't. And, you know, and sometime in the 2000s, I just said, you know, I need to pick one or the other because it was getting to be too much to try to play live music and do the studio thing. And it was just too much. So. Yeah. Going on the
0: road, I feel like can really choke momentum. Like if you're starting to produce records or get a lot of engineering work and then all of a sudden you disappear for like three months, it can be really challenging to
1: balance those. Yeah, it doesn't work, especially these days. Everyone expects something, you know, instant revisions like, hey, can you do this? True. So, you know, we gave it a try, but I think realized pretty quickly that making a living as a musician is not going to really work out and I was thankful that everyone kept calling me to record their stuff so I said maybe this is a thing and you know it didn't happen overnight but certainly year by year gets a little bit better and uh yeah that's how I got into it
0: that's cool so it sounds like you're pretty self-taught until you got into some of those other studios where were you learning
1: tricks just exploring yeah I was totally self-taught you know the guy that we used to rent this cassette eight track well it started as a four track he upgraded to an eight track. He taught me some super basics, you know, like what buttons to press, but you know, no, no techniques. <laughs> that was just a lot of listening to records I liked and fighting. How, how do we get it to sound half as halfway good as that? I did go to the recording workshop. I didn't go to college, but I went to the recording workshop in Ohio. I heard a few people talk about that more recently that they went there. This you know, this was the year two thousand, so I skipped the Pro Tools. They had a Pro Tools section for like two weeks i skipped that because i just didn't see the i don't know why i was kind of anti-computer until like 2003 and now i'm the opposite of that but (laughs) i skipped the pro tools skipped the maintenance because i was never good with fixing things and soldering and all that stuff so yeah but i did learn basic signal flow and i got to touch some real recording gear or what felt like real gear at the time but yeah i did that that's like a six-month thing at the most and then shortly after that, I got to go up to Green Bay, like I mentioned. And the owner of that studio taught me a ton. You know, he taught me how to listen. Like, I didn't even really realize that you could, you know, aesthetics in a recording. It was more like it's recorded or it's not recorded. Like, what are you talking about? Aesthetics. <laughs> you know, and when, when we went in to record our EP, you know, he kept talking about motifs and styles for the production. And that I'd never even thought of it like that. For me, I was just happy to get it captured like i didn't even think to like push forward and so he taught me a ton like you know the why and the how and you know like you're not going to record a punk band the same way you might a polka band and things like that which is something yeah. i had to learn in real life you know i so eric at simple studios taught me a ton and then you know just other engineers when i got down to smart studios that was the first time there was really like a staff you know there was, it wasn't huge but Bo Sorensen, who is in California now? He was working at Smart Studios at the time and a couple other people. So you pick up little things here and there, but basically self taught, trial and error. And it's awesome. I didn't realize
0: Butch's studio is up in Wisconsin. Is that where he does all of his work?
1: Well, he sold it in about 2009. Okay. But he started Smart Studios in the early 80s, just doing like anyone that would walk through the door and give him a 12 pack of beer to record all night. But then he really started to get a name for himself. You know, there was like Steve Albini in Chicago and then Butch was kind of had his thing up here and, you know, Sub Pop started sending Butch bands. So, you know, that's how Nirvana ended up there uh, recording and then kind of made musical history. But yeah, he was in Madison and he even did a lot of big records. Um, You know, Nirvana Nevermind was done in LA. Yeah. Once they got the budget, the record label probably wanted to keep a closer eye on things in LA. But he did a lot of, You know, he did Smashing Pumpkins, a lot of iconic records he did in Madison. That's cool. He moved out to LA at some point and started working everywhere. You know, his band Garbage, that that was kind of their home base, is in Madison. You know, a lot of their guitars and keyboards were always hanging around and stuff like that. But by the time I got there, he was mostly in LA. He had a couple of health problems, from what I understand. and, And Garbage had just done a new, at that time, a comeback record. So he just was not around too much, but... Kept it going till about 2009 and just eventually sold the building. I kind of saw that writing on the wall, which is why I moved to Milwaukee and started my own. I didn't have a plan at all, but I stumbled into a few things, and that's when I officially started a mastering studio. Because the guy that had been doing mastering in Milwaukee wanted to move out of across country but keep the building. So he asked me if I wanted to rent a space. I had to furnish it and equip it, but I, I inherited a really nicely built-out mastering room. Oh, nice. That I didn't have to do any build-out on. So that was sort of the impetus for starting a mastering studio, is I was already interested in it. I was already doing it to some degree, and then I, I said, this is my sign to take it seriously and transition.
0: Then uh sounds like mastering very self-taught, too. You never worked under anybody, just exploring and figuring it out. That's That's your story.
1: Yeah, self-taught, because, you know, the records I was doing in the 2000s were low-budget. It might be hard to imagine now, but... It's easy to find mastering online now. You can, yeah. even with like Lander, it's it's ridiculous. But back in the 2000s, you know, you had to either travel because a lot of my clients were in central Wisconsin. There's no mastering studio. So you're traveling to Milwaukee, Chicago, or a major city, or you're just sending stuff off and hoping for the best. But more importantly, you, you probably don't have the budget for mastering because they're so low budget projects. So I would always enjoy it when stuff got mastered elsewhere, but so much of it, I ended up mastering myself out of just out of necessity. So I sort of just slowly got a little better at it and learned more and more about what it entails, you know, to the point where eventually, eventually people are seeing my name on records and just asking me to master it. And I'm like, oh, that was, I remember that being a, a turning point too. I'm like, but why would you want me to master your record? Cause there's other <laughs> mastering engineers. <laughs> I like recording and mixing and mastering. There was always just kind of this after, you know, not afterthought, but just to add on out of necessity. And then right. the more I did it, the more I really got curious about the rest of the process, because we all know the stereo processing side of things, but what's involved with assembling, you know, a production master for CD, vinyl, now streaming, yeah, all these formats we do. I mean, there was so much more to it than just, you know, the stereo bus processing is the fun part, of course, but there's other details involved that mastering engineers do on a daily basis that some people don't always think about. So I just started to go deeper down those rabbit holes of what are these other things that happen? You know, why are we using different software? Why aren't we mastering a record in Pro Tools? Right. You know, because it lacks certain features that just factually... I mean, you can do the stereo processing in Pro Tools. I, I grew up using Pro Tools, so I'm not bashing Pro Tools, but there's just factual things that I do every day in mastering that Pro Tools is... Not able to do. So I just kept learning all these little things and getting more calls for mastering. And like I said, this room fell into my lap in Milwaukee. So that's when I just kind of actually registered my business um, as a proper business, all that good stuff. And that's been over 10 years of that.
0: So you've kind of touched on a bunch of questions that I wrote out. One of them I was going to ask you later when we got into some technical stuff, but it sounds like you'd have a really interesting answer to that now because you were mastering your own mixes and trying to figure out like what mastering was. Yeah. Do you have any advice for producers or artists that are, you know, total DIY, doing the whole process when it comes to mastering, like what's the one or two most important things they should keep in mind if they're going to try to finish their own music?
1: Well, I wish I had started using this program called Wave Lab sooner and kind of separated the processes more like... You know, get your mixes out of Pro Tools, then bring them into a new session and wa- It's designed for mastering, where you have all the songs, really visible, huge waveforms. You can put effects right on each song versus like on a track or a master fader. You know, WaveLab has clip effects. So you're putting a plug-in right on each song. So it's a really efficient way to work. Way better metering, way better export and metadata features. Just all the stuff that, you know, if you master two records a year, Maybe it's not a big deal to hammer it out some other way, but if you're mastering all day, every day, like these little efficiencies save you hours a week, many hours a month, and, you know, just make your life a whole lot easier. Yeah. So I wish I had done that sooner. Uh, Also monitoring. I mean, I recently got some new speakers in here, and like I said, I moved to Madison, back to Madison almost two years ago. My studio's been back in Madison for about a year, but my monitoring is by far the best it's ever been and i'm just working so much faster and confidently and i already had revisions down to pretty low minimum but now you know it just got even better so i mean it's not fun to invest in your room and monitoring for some people at least you know they want to buy the new mic preamp or the new interface or the you know the new instrument but the better you can hear what you're doing you know the better you're the happier you're going to be with results the faster you're going to get results Oh, yeah. I mean, I remember mixing in my first apartment in Milwaukee on NS10s with no treatment and lots of echo in the room because it was huge and just battling, you know, just getting so many mixed notes and clients that didn't love the mix right away. And, you know, to the point where I all I had at the time, this was mid 2000s. So, you know, just mixing on Sony headphones instead. Yeah. Getting better results than that room. So, yeah, I'm investing in the room and the tools, you know, for sure. And it, and it doesn't need to be hardware at all. I mean, I do a lot of projects now that are all in the box, you know, all digital, no analog gear. So, you know, I think looking back, wish I would have done that sooner, but I'm happy to be in a good place now with all that.
0: If you're enjoying this episode, then please consider pulling your phone out, tapping that share button and sending this to one person that you think would enjoy it. Obviously, it would be huge for me, but it could be even more game-changing for that person. You just never know what can inspire or help someone else out. I want to take a second to tell you about Secret Sonics, a podcast by Ben Wallach and Carl Bonner. Secret Sonics is one of my favorite shows, and it's now double amazing with the addition of Carl Bonner as a co-host. Ben and Carl have teamed up to discuss the real-world trials and triumphs of music production. They cover it all from mixing and studio tricks to branding and mindsets. If you're a fan of progressions, you'll be a fan of Secret Sonics. Check it out wherever you listen to podcasts or hit the link in the show notes yeah I couldn't agree more with the monitoring you know I built this studio about a year ago and back behind my house and it's like night and day like mixes go down so much faster revisions have shaved like two revisions off nobody ever has a frequency note anymore there's never like a this is bright or this is muddy it's always like turn this up turn that down yeah and it all happens faster it's just like I can't I I can't support what you just said enough like if you can't hear what you're doing it doesn't matter what you're doing it with
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and there's a little bit of evolution of learning, you know, developing your ears too. Like, if if I would have dropped this monitoring situation in my first mastering room, I don't know if I could have fully appreciated it, and I still would have been doing dumb things. But, True. you know, it kind of goes hand in hand, you know, developing your ear and tastes and, and skills and improving your monitoring is, is so important. What is your setup right now? The monitors are PMC-8-2. Okay. They're newer thing, and... I was never a huge fan of this, you know, digital correction stuff, but these PMCs have a digital input, so I'm like, okay, I'm already in the digital world, I might as well try the Trinov, I don't know if you've tried the Trinov. Familiar with it, but I haven't tried it. It's a little bit like Sonarworks, but on steroids, I mean, it corrects (laughs) frequency stuff, but also, the really big thing is it corrects timing stuff, I mean, you can sit here with a laser all afternoon and measure your speakers at your ear and angles, but you know, the Trinov has a special mic with a bunch of antennas and it, it really just adjusts the timing. So your left and right speakers are hitting you at the same time. And in focus, it's just like getting a better pair of glasses when you thought your old glasses were fine. Or, you know, when you finally clean off your car windshield, you are like, oh, maybe it was pretty dirty. So yeah, the Trinov is great. I was very anti-room correction and DSP, but I've revamped my whole system now so that it's all digital up into the speaker. You know, I have a digital monitor controller. The turn-off's digital, the PMCs. You know, I thought I might need the subs, but somebody from PMC actually flew up here to help install them and troubleshoot a weird thing. And we measured, and it's what I'm hearing is great, and what he's measuring is great. You know, I I, I may want subs if I was listening super loud, like tracking sessions or mixing when you got a whole band in here that's part rowdy, but You know, for listening at 85 decibels, 80 to 85 decibels feels great in here. So very happy with with all the updates.
0: That's great. Yeah, I've glanced at the Trinov and and I'm kind of the same way. I don't don't want to put any EQ on my room and my room sounds really good. But uh, yeah, I guess I'm in that place that
1: you were before where you're just like a little
0: resistant of like,
1: why do I need to do that? I didn't want to like it at all. When I had, you know powered analog speakers i didn't even entertain the idea but you know the pmc speakers i wanted were like being discontinued and they're like well we have one pair left but you know the new line is better for because it has an amp for every driver versus an amp just one single amp and oh wow i'm a fan of powered speakers i don't have the patience to like deal with separate amps and impedance i just don't have i'm just Always been a fan of powered speakers. So the new PMCs, you know, they sold me on the, which basically meant, you know, it's going digital. So my theory was keep everything digital. You yeah. Know, I use analog gear for processing sometimes, but the monitoring path is, does not go analog until it's inside the speaker. So I thought, well, this is a good time to try the trend And some people I really respect, swear by it, other mastering engineers that, you know, I really respect their opinion and work. I'll say it's a game changer and essential, so I'm like, now's the time to try it. And That's awesome. It's great for correction. It's great for managing subwoofers if you do have subs, such as time aligns, everything, and very good customer support, too.
0: Great. Probably not for the DIYer who's making a garage no. record. but <laughs> No, not at
1: all. That's But that's where you can end up. That's where I started, and this is where I ended up. That's right. You start
0: on a four-track in a garage and you end up with the Trinnov system, which is... yeah, oh, a- right. I
1: mean, I started on, you know, the powered Alesis speakers that probably cost $200, maybe. They were Alesis-powered something with a blue dot. And, you know, <laughs> it's really about the person doing the work. Tools help, but the person doing the work is usually the most important. Well, plus the music you're deal- working with, but just on a technical standpoint. Yeah,
0: that's probably first. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Music first. So you mentioned you do have some analog in your chain. I wanted to ask you about your mastering chain because I've had a couple mastering master engineers on the show, but we never really got into like setting a chain up, you know, because I feel like a lot of people that don't understand mastering, they just think like a mastering chain is like, I've got these two things and I always use these two or I always use Ozone or whatever it is. Do you have a base starting point when you sit down to master a record or do you kind of custom pick pieces and plugins based on the content?
1: Yeah, I mean, I have some favorites that get used more than others. I have some pieces of gear that come to mind when I first listen to the music before I start doing anything. Like this is either going to be great or that's definitely not going to be used. That kind of thing, just because of the tone of the, you know, the nature of the piece. But no, I don't. I don't have a starting point. Luckily, I have a great insert switcher. I mean, I started with just two pieces of gear, so there was no patch bay. There's everything was hardwired. You know, I only had one EQ and one compressor, and that's it. And then it kind of grew from there so i had to get an insert switcher and now i have a fancy one that lets me insert any piece of gear in any order cool you know like some of these insert switchers you can put the gear in and out of the chain but they're basically in a fixed order mm, yeah uh, you can usually swap like inputs three and four or five and six but it's more or less the fixed chain and to be honest i could probably get away with that because i do use a very similar order most of the time but you know, this Crookwood insert switcher lets me put any piece of gear in any order. If I want to do it totally backwards, I don't have to do any rewiring. So that helps just kind of make sure you're happy with what you're doing. You know, it's not making it <laughs> worse, that kind of thing. But, you know, I find myself using less and less analog gear. I can usually listen to a mix or a project, and within less than a minute, usually within 10 seconds, you know, decide which path I'm going to go. If I'm going to stay all digital or if I think going analog is going to help. And it depends a little bit on the style of music, a little bit on the style of the mixing, if it's been crushed with a limiter already or if it's totally wide open and can handle some processing. There's so many variables about what I decide. I mean, I've never done a record and had someone say, you didn't use analog gear. Can you go back (laughs) and, you know... But I have had some people come back with comments that made me wonder if... Using analog was the best option, and I'll either do a digital correction to that, or if it's really far off, literally just start over and either use different gear, less gear, or just stay digital and do you know no gear so it's really all over the map it's It's one of those things that it's nice to have the analog gear it's become not essential over the years with how great plugins have gotten, yeah. And how cooked some mixes are coming in, you know. We're slowly going back to that, you know, if you think of mastering in the late 60s, it was like to do the least amount possible to get it from analog tape to lacquers for vinyl. Yeah. Do the least amount possible, you know. Then Doug Sachs started proving that he could maybe enhance it a little bit in that process, and then mastering became more of a stylistic thing. Got really extreme in the late, into the 80s, and certainly in the 90s with all the limiting, and now we're almost not every project but with more projects it's sort of coming back around to like doing a lot less because some of the good mix engineers already have you know limiter on it and some bus processing that not only do they like but the mix relies upon it for the balance to you know yeah i also get projects where unknowing to me people remove some limiting and a ton of stuff that everyone's been listening to and then i get it it sounds completely different, and it's almost like a, an unfair battle unless you know that there's a, a loud reference version that you're sort of aiming for. So, anyways, it, it gets a little complicated these days with some people mixing into stuff and some people not. You know, I, I did a record a few weeks ago where the the mixes came in like so much headroom and dynamics, and I just asked the mix engineer if I could have his reference versions so I know. And he's like, no, this these are the mixes the band approved. And I'm like, that's actually awesome. I wish that makes everyone's life easier because yeah. now you're not sending me something that they've never even heard to master yeah. and hopefully guess and read minds. So anyways, it's all over the map as far as what we're getting and what we're aiming for. So that's a long way of answering. Like, you know, sometimes I just stay digital and do very little. Yeah. Sometimes it's a traditional, like I feel like I'm in the 2000s again where I'm just using relying heavily on gear and really digging in and adding some character and that's what they're going to love. So it's really interesting times for mastering.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you how you felt about getting limited mixes because I've started the last like year, I send my limiter and then my unlimited. I do like... 95% of my mix without the limiter on. So it's not night and day different, but it is good to know like how loud the client's been listening, like how aggressive somebody was going. It's like same thing with the rough mix. Like if I get a rough mix that's cooked, I need to find a way to get my mix reference to be cooked too. And then you have to make your master cooked.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I mean, if people need to mix into a limiter, that's fine. I just think... A you need to send that to your mastering person so they know what was going on cuz like I said I've I've had cases where I get a nice mix with tons of headroom and dynamics and I don't realize how hard it was being crushed in the you know the reference versions for the the client was listening to so and then the problem becomes when when people mix through it you know if you're doing like a typical rock band and you're putting heavy limiting on the master bus and then you take that off usually the drums poke out way loud and the guitar levels drop Oh, yeah, so kind of my only choice then is to also master it super loud and and smash it to get the balance back because you know I have to crush it with a limiter to chop off the drum transients and get the guitar levels back up. So it kind of paints the mastering person into a corner if you're going too aggressive. Now, if you're doing some mild limiting at the end of the process just to see what pokes out, that's a lot safer. But once you're doing aggressive limiting and you know multiband stuff and imaging, it's just like, you almost just have to leave that on because if you remove it now you, the mix is nothing like it used to be so and maybe that's for the better i mean maybe you realize that little by little you've been ruining it and then you take all that off and it clears up and suddenly everything doesn't hurt your ears anymore so that can go both ways too but i honestly don't really care how people work as long as the communication is good like you know whether it's like here's my mixes with No Limiting, but then here's what the band's been listening to. I get more and more of that lately. Yeah. Or the artist's been listening to. I get some stuff where it says No Limiting or Unmastered, but it's just a brick wall already. And it's like, okay, Uh. um, this is more of a quality control job, just listening for clicks and pops and sample rate conversion and dithering. And then I get some stuff, you know, I have been bitten where it's like, I've gotten better about it, but I remember a few years, quite a few years ago, I mastered a record we had this whole talk, because it was like right when the Foo Fighters came out with this song that was not mastered super loud at all. In fact, maybe it wasn't mastered, and that's why it was like that. But everyone thought, oh, Dynamics are back, because streaming's turning it down anyway. So we had this big talk, because they're huge Foo Fighters fans. So then I mastered it. It was even a little louder than that Foo Fighters track, but they got it, and they're like, man, this is way off. Like, you know, it just doesn't sound like... Well, it turns out the mix engineer was not only sending them, like, you know limited mixes but they were just destroyed loud so of course that's knocking the drum hits down and bringing the guitars up so once i heard that then i was like okay now i know but without that information you could really go down the wrong path so i mean i guess the only danger with mix engineers doing that is you have to really trust your monitoring and you know because to be honest sometimes they get the reference mixes and there there's a lot of distortion and just kind of harsh stuff that maybe people aren't hearing on their small speakers or yeah things like that so i guess everything in moderation is usually good advice but yeah yeah i see stuff all over the map as far as how limited or not it is and it's just about communication but if there are reference versions i i think you should always absolutely send those to the mastering engineer cuz that just is going to save everybody time and you know make your project turn out better and the project will go more smoothly yeah
0: Well, communication is huge. It's like, I've definitely had times where, you know, I did a mix and took inspiration from the rough mix. And then the first round of mix notes is like, hey, we really wanted this to be dry, more like this. And they send me some bounce from like six weeks prior to the the bounce that they sent. And I'm just like, we've now just all lost like a day of our life (laughs) because we're not having communication. So it's like, yeah, that's the big part is back and forth with the clients and making sure that everybody's on the same page.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm very big about communication. I always get back to emails right away. You know, the lines of communication are always open. I mean, it's not hard to go on a forum and see like a bad mastering story where someone sent it out to get mastered and they hated it and they never heard back from the mastering engineer and they had to pay up front and it was a waste of time and money. And, you know, there are those stories, but I don't operate like that at all. For one, there's open communication. Two, I never send an invoice until the client is happy, which I know some people are think is taboo but i've had great luck with that you know i don't send the invoice till they're happy so if for some reason they don't like it and i disappear (laughs) they're not feeling ripped off you know not that that's happened but if it did you know at least they're not they haven't paid for it yet that kind of thing but yeah i mean you can hear these stories but i i don't really know any people that work that way like all the people i know that do mastering are really huge on communication and if there's revisions Everyone has their own preference for billing. You know, do you bill up front? Do you take a deposit? Mastering is so fast-paced and relatively small amount compared to production. I don't like to do deposits because it's just one more thing to deal with. You know, I mean, yeah. if you're producing and you're spending two months on a project, then yeah, you probably want to deposit because you got to pay your bills and just don't have to waste two months. But for mastering, it's so <laughs> fast-paced that you know, I have a singles page that takes payment up front because it's a really small amount and it's like an express thing. But for EPs and records, I don't do any deposit or billing up front. So my communication is always open. So, I mean, you're not going to have that story of, yeah, we sent it to the person and they made it worse. And then like, we we couldn't get a hold of them. And now we're stuck with this thing. I mean, I don't know anyone that operates like that, but apparently if you go on forums, it's, it's happened. And these people exist. Yeah, that can leave a bad taste in people's mouth about mastering in general, but, you know, that's, I like to point out that I don't think that's the norm. Has it happened? Probably, but I don't think that's what you can expect from most most people I know, you know, other mastering friends.
0: Totally. Well, you mentioned your website. You, you've you got this cool, like, calculator form on there that I saw this morning when I was on on there, where you kind of, like, somebody can kind of check all the options, it asks all the questions, and then they have basically the price they can expect. Do you think that increases business for you or does it mainly cut down on communication time?
1: Both, to be honest. I get a lot of projects. And in fact, I bet you when we get off this call, there'll be a a record in my inbox because what that allows people to do is just submit their projects without me having to email back and forth or talk to them. And I will talk to people if they want to, but I get a lot of projects that just come in blind. Sometimes it's from someone I've worked with Sometimes it's from someone I've never communicated with and I have no idea where they're located and it's great because all the information's there. I can get started right away if I want to, but yeah, like you said, it gives people pricing, but it really started as a way for me to collect information because as I transitioned to mastering full time, I'm like, man, I'm sending the same email every project, you know, what's your band's name? What's the album name? What's the song order? You know, is this word supposed to be spelled incorrectly on purpose as a pun or did you just spell, you know, all these details that I'm like, this could totally be a form. And luckily a friend of mine does website work. So we sort of became better friends through the website work. But anyways, I have a really great website person and he just developed this form. And I know that it's a little bit wordy. I mean, it's not the kind of form that's like, Hey, um, I'm mildly interested in mastering. Can we talk? It's It's like, for people that are ready to go. Like I have a project that needs to be mastered next week. Here's the information. We're doing vinyl, CD cassette. We do need instrumentals. We don't, you know, all this stuff. Yeah. It's basically like having a, a secretary or an assistant. That's just always on the website for me to collect information and give people pricing. And you can edit this out if it's a dumb story, but it always reminds <laughs> me of this time. I didn't get the yeah. idea from it, but it, I made the connection. One day at our old house, getting a new furnace and air conditioner put in. And I can't work because I got to be home for this thing. And I can't even work from home because they're making so much noise. So I'm like, that's a nice looking air conditioner. I I should get a cover for that air conditioner because, you know, it's the kind that sits outside. Right. There's all these websites that sold air conditioner covers, but most of them were like, hey, call us and we'll get back to you in 24 to 48 hours. And I went on this one website and it was like, okay, what's your air conditioner model number? What brand, what model, like all this stuff. And within 10 minutes, I had an air conditioner cover on the way. That's awesome. And I didn't have to talk to anybody. So there's there's people out there like that, or kind of like Amazon, where you want to know the price. You go on Amazon to order new toothbrush heads or whatever. You know exactly what you want, and you say, that cost is fine, just get here. I don't need to talk to anybody about this to make it happen. Yeah. So again, it started as a way to collect information, but also... There's no doubt that it has attracted clients I may have not otherwise gotten because you know they don't want to like send that email that says we'll get back to you someday exactly. It's like no, you can see the price, you can send it to me and we can kind of go from there. you know sometimes I do talk to people before I get started. so it's not that I am against that, but it, it saves everyone so much time and again, I know it's long, but I can literally do a project with one email you know it, it's happened where, they send me the project. I got all the information. I send it back. It's approved. Then I we, I send them all the finals. And we're, I mean, that's a doesn't happen too often. But that's how streamlined it could be. And then there's always the you know sounds great, but can you do this or we got to change the song or Those things happen. But the whole point is just to save me time because decades ago, studios could have assistants and office people. And yeah, you know, I could hire somebody to do this, but then I would be. Maybe not doubling my mastering rates, but certainly having higher mastering rates to accommodate for, you know, paying someone. And this just sort of uh, allows it to be a pretty close to a full-time secretary kind of thing.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. Does that information, like, automatically populate into a Google Sheet for you or, like, a CRM or something?
1: Yeah, it goes two places. It goes to my email, so I know that it came in. Right. It also I use an app called OmniFocus, which is kind of like Trello, if you know Trello. Yeah. But OmniFocus is made by Mac lovers. I'm a fan of when things have their own app using a dedicated app. You know, I don't like to go on the web. I tried Trello, but I mean, it's fine. But, you know, I didn't want to go into a web browser. And at the time, it was very bright and white and like (laughs) hurt your eyes. Whereas for a long time, OmniFocus has a dark mode. So it's a little more soothing on the eyes. It's got an iPhone app. Mac app and it syncs to all your Macs if you have more than one. So the information goes into my. I wouldn't call it a CRM because it doesn't have a, all the features of a CRM would, but it's a way that I keep track of projects. So I can drag things in order and say, okay, this one needs to be done next. You know, I basically have a first come first serve list of projects and I'll move stuff around and prioritize if if needed because people can put their deadlines in that form as well. Okay, so it goes into OmniFocus and then that lets me. You know, if someone does change the title of their record or the song order, I can edit. Because, you know, emails you can't really edit, but OmniFocus is where I can edit stuff if I need to. Yeah. And then when it's done, I can kind of put it in a special area that says, you know, waiting for approval. And then when it's done, it's done. And uh, so, yeah, everything comes into me that way. And it's just how I manage projects.
0: That's awesome. I used OmniFocus for a couple of years, and then I switched away from it and kind of started using this thing called Notion. I don't know if you've seen Notion. It's I haven't. It's nerdy. It's like kind of like build your own. You know, that's the problem is it can become a time suck because you can basically recreate OmniFocus in there, but you have to build it. But then you can also tie everything else in your life into it. So it's uh, not for the faint of heart.
1: <laughs> I mean, in a perfect world, I would love to take two months off and just do a bunch of stuff like that. But right now I don't have that kind of time. But yeah, for me, OmniFocus works. You know, I love to have a more integrated crm with where it's like an email client and uh, all this other stuff but for now that's that's kind of what i got going on and it works well for me the other thing that i didn't see coming with mastering is it's so fast-paced you know when i was producing and mixing and recording i just had iCal and gmail you know i would have a date on my iCal like wednesday i'm mixing this band's songs whether it's two songs or a whole record whatever yeah. When I got into mastering, I'm like, "Well, this is not going to work because there's way too many things going on, way too fast paced." So I realized I needed to move to some kind of scheduling thing where I can put things in a to do list sort of order, and because uh, yeah. managing on a calendar was just not happening. It's so fast paced, stuff coming in and out, and uh, you know, revisions and all those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, there's a lot more projects in and out. Uh, while we're kind of on the the workflow tips, are there any other like big time saver tricks that you have or automations? Are you into that kind of stuff?
1: I'm into it. I'm into the concept of it. <laughs> um, you know, I forgot what it was, but I tried doing something with Zapier because I know if, if people don't know what Zapier is or maybe it's called Zapier, but it's just a way to automate a bunch of things. Like if this happens, then do this and then do that. And yeah, again, I would just need to take a little more downtime than I have to sort that all out that's how i feel with mastering a big thing that helps me is email templates because uh, when i send out a master i pretty much want to say the same thing you know how to listen to your master and what to look for and a couple of tips and then i can just paste in the link you know i'm a big fan of dropbox dropbox gets ripped on i think people when people don't know how to use it and you do like a folder share for like everything and then the other person's got to like add to their account and it's a big headache but dropbox can be cool if you stick to you know direct links that no one has to be logged in for. So I just leave, I have these email templates that I can just paste in the, you know, the link to their project and then some information about whether it's the initial master for approval or all the deliverables, you know, the high res and the vinyl map, you know, all the details. I can just put it right into an email template because I'm basically saying the same thing every project. Right. So, so that's a big thing that's helped me. But otherwise, yeah, it's just like, you know, OmniFocus, I guess Session Recall is a cool app if you have analog gear because you can log all your analog settings. Oh, okay. And it stores it. So, I mean, it looks like you're controlling a plugin, but it's just an app. It's a separate app that stores all the settings. And, you know, some people get grumpy because he doesn't have every piece of gear. Some of the gear is under the generic section because he couldn't get permission to use their actual name. And He's even made me a few custom pieces. So session recall is cool. I mean, you always hear people, you know, saying they use... uh pictures, but if I did that for mastering, I'd have eighty zillion pictures. I don't want that <laughs> many photos. So I just used the session recall app. I mean I could live without it, but it's nice to have.
0: Yeah, right, right. There was one years ago that had a weird name that people used to eat.
1: T-Boy? Yeah, T Boy. I remember I remember T-Boy. Yeah, that was okay. I mean I used that for a brief period of time, but even 10 years ago, it looked like it was... It looked so dated even back then, like this app was going to die soon. So I moved over to Session Recall. It's way more modern and the developer is really, really responsive. That's awesome. I wanted to ask you a
0: question, especially since you mentioned, you know, Butch being up in Wisconsin, you mentioned Steve Albini coming out of Chicago. You've spent your whole career in Wisconsin. You're busy. You're doing great work. What do you think about this, like, limiting belief that kids might have that they got to go to New York or Nashville or L.A. Like, obviously, you have a long-standing career outside of one of these hubs.
1: You think more kids should try it out? I think about that a lot because I feel really fortunate to have grown up before the social media era. You know, I got to experience life both ways. Yeah. I was born in 81. So, for anyone who wants to do math, you know, computers didn't start coming around until high school. And then, you know, social media... I was well out of high school before MySpace and Facebook came around. So I got I basically started my career before I knew I was starting a career. I started my career by playing in bands, playing local shows. You bump into a band and say they say, Hey, we we like the sound of your CD or even cassette. You know, we need to record. Can you record us? I mean, that is absolutely how I got the snowball effect going of clients. I don't think I could have done that today by just posting facebook ads and having a, a lot of instagram followers. I mean that that can augment what you're doing in real life, but I don't think you can really build a career. I'm sure it's happened in exceptions, but I don't think you can really build a sustainable career through social media. So I mean, if I was young today, especially during a pandemic, I probably would be going to maybe some bigger cities to see if I could just bump into people in in real life because it's all about relationships and I hate the word networking, but bumping into people in real life because you know to be honest it can be kind of annoying when someone dms you out of nowhere it says you know check out my beats or whatever you know those beats do not get checked out usually but <laughs> uh to do it in real life it's, you know and it's got to be kind of natural too so for me it was super natural playing in bands and you know meeting people and then meeting people that are meeting other people like i i really got some great clients when a friend of mine started to work for an artist management company. So he was going on the road with some notable bands. So he was sort of helping me out on a whole nother level that I couldn't possibly be on. Yeah. So I don't know. There's not a great answer to that. But one of my favorite saying is, is if you have to move to LA or New York to get it, you probably don't have it. You know, I don't think moving is all... It's got to be a little bit of everything. I think you got to have, you know, the drive know, we can learn arts to some degree, but I think it's also some people are born with it more than others, you know, for better or worse. I mean, I think arts is such a strange thing to teach because it, you know, it takes longer than a semester to, to learn something and, you know, it depends how much the person wants to put into it. So true. I don't know. I mean, I just never, I never really had the opportunity to move out of here. You know, when I was young, I didn't have enough money to even like stop working for a week, let alone rent a moving truck. Right or find a place to live in a new city, and then, you know, start over. I had supportive parents, but I don't think they were going to just give me money to move across the country and likely fail, and then, you know. So I just never even, I never had time to even, like, look at apartments or studios I'd want to intern at in L.A., or, you know, it's just like, I'm here recording these bands from around here that are calling me. You know, I'll just keep doing that, you know. That's, that's basically... Now, if I moved, it would be really more for weather-related purposes than <laughs> music opportunities. You know, and being in the Midwest, I can keep my overhead a little bit lower than people in LA and, and New York and things like that. So that's an advantage that I have, which works against me because sometimes people see the rates and they're like, oh, it's only that much, it can't be any good. So, I mean, I'm in a weird spot You know, I was getting close to raising my rates and then the pandemic hit. So I'm like, well, this is the worst time to raise rates when bands and artists can't even play a gig yeah, or even go to their day job sometimes. So, you know, thankfully I'm super busy and everything's working out in the new space. So, I mean, I think the answer is going to be different for everybody, but I just never literally had the chance to think about it or do it to move to a big city. You know, when I went to the recording workshop, they talked about job placement, but they really didn't do anything um, for, you know, It might be different now, but it was just like, okay, thanks for coming to our workshop and good luck with (laughs) things kind of thing. Basically, there was no plan. It was just like, just try to keep surviving day to day, year after year.
0: Yeah, well, I think the most important part of that is the relationship aspect because I think a lot of people get caught up in, like I said, like the locale and being in a place. And, you know, I agree to a certain extent that like you have to, you know, if you want to make, country music and you can be a country songwriter you can be far better off to be in Nashville but if you're in Nashville and you don't have any relationships then it's a bit pointless you'd be better off being in your hometown with a network of friends that you can write music with that are all like equally driven like there is so much to relationships I think about like my career like part of me would would love to leave LA at one point maybe we'll see but I feel like I can do that only because I've been here building the relationships if I didn't have any relationships here I definitely wouldn't be able to go anywhere else I'd have to start over so yeah that's that's the key point
1: yeah and it's everything's opened up so much now with social media you know there's people that I've never met in person but I feel like I know them you know through social media and things like that so I don't know but I was just super fortunate to grow you know we had a really really healthy local mostly punk and rock music scene in the 90s you know in my area and that just we got an all ages venue. So without that, I don't think I'd be I don't think I would have had enough work to pursue music full time and I might have been working in a factory somewhere. But, you know, just playing these terrible local shows where like maybe you got gas money and maybe there was 20 people there, but 20 really passionate people that you know you can still remember a lot of them. And yeah, you know, I mean, I'm still working with people that I met in the mid nineties through small local shows. That's awesome, because you know those bands end and the new bands start and people move. and uh, yeah, it's just so uh, yeah, I mean, if you don't have any network at home and you don't have a lot of options, yeah, I, I would hit up some studios and see if they need a intern kind of thing because that still does exist to some degree. It's not like the the glory days, but I do think there are still opportunities out there for people that are that are hungry for it,
0: yeah, it's always a good place to learn, you know, maybe not the place to stay forever. And uh, you know, something that you mentioned that I think is super important is the all ages venues. Like you don't think about it like when you get older, but when you're a kid, there were so few all ages venues. So just having a place to go see music or play music and be like a 15 year old is just so
1: important for a community to have
0: like, you know,
1: yeah, some of that art flowing through. So we were totally spoiled. I mean, I lived about 45 minutes from Green Bay, which is a small, it's got to be like the smallest city that has a pro football team. People know Green Bay from the Packers. It's it's not huge. It's probably like the third or fourth biggest city in Wisconsin, but it's not huge by most standards. But yeah, luckily we had a guy that he just he would bring in all sorts of touring bands. You know, this was Green Day was just huge, so a lot of the Lookout Records bands kind of things were coming through touring all the time. So yeah, as as an underage person, you know, it was great because I was seeing great music on a weekly basis at least, and it was. And I remember when we first started going on tour, we're like, okay, this is going to be great. We're going to play at this type of venue all over the country. But we really had something special because, you know, some cities did not have anything like what we had at home. And it was just a really good impetus and fuel for someone that wanted to record bands. That's that's amazing. So let's work our way
0: to our closing questions. And this one, it's just kind of a fun question. Is there any music that you think people are sleeping on any artist right now you really love it could be something you worked on or or is or something you just love listening to are there any artists you want people to go check out
1: oh man that's so tough it's just as tough as when people like ask you what you've been working on cuz <laughs> i always have to look at my calendar i don't even know cuz like i mentioned earlier i just don't get the time to listen to new music anymore it's not a great thing but it's just <laughs> when i'm not working on music i'm like in silence or listening to podcasts so Any uh,
0: big influential ones from your past outside of Nirvana that got you started?
1: Um, The Replacements from Minneapolis are one of my favorite bands. They're like kind of big in the college rock scene in the eighties. Yeah, then got into Nirvana. I mean, in more modern times, I really like the War on Drugs. I don't think people are sleeping on the War on Drugs, but they are great. Remember when that won a Grammy or something? I'm like, I should just check this out because you know it was. Seemed like it might be up my alley compared to a lot of things that get win Grammys, and it was actually pretty cool. So I listen. I, I like the War on Drugs, but that's kind of a random, off the top of my head thing. I don't. I don't have a great answer for this, unfortunately. Because no,
0: that, that's fine.
1: I'm kind of a stick to the classics person when it comes to music or what I want for dinner. Like same old thing. Like I'm not as <laughs> not as adventurous as I should be or used to be back when I was younger. Just kind of due to time, um, things like that. That's awesome. You
0: mentioned Grammy noms. We were emailing back and forth. You just had a record that got a nomination. You said it yesterday, the things came out.
1: Yeah, because their last record, I think, won their category. So I'm like, well, maybe this one has a chance. Nice. And it, yeah, it got nominated for contemporary blues category, which is, you know, I don't do. I don't want people to think I only work on blues because I actually don't do a whole lot of blues, and <laughs> I don't even really listen to much blues. But that just happens to kind of be there. Genre, as I mentioned, I do a little bit of everything, but definitely a first Grammy nomination that I was involved. Well, it's funny. I mentioned the replacements. Um, Last year, the replacements were nominated for a Grammy for a project I worked on, but in true replacements fashion, it was for the liner notes of the box set and not the actual music, which is kind of (laughs) hilarious. I don't really count that one because it was, I mean, the liner notes are great and the guy that writes them is great, but it wasn't for the music. Right, and it was for their first record that was not you know super well, well recorded. It was pretty raw, uh, but the, st- the story is cool, and that's why he won because he did a good job writing it. But yeah, I don't know how far people stretch it with saying you're a Grammy nominated engineer. I don't know if this counts or if it has to be um, awarded for best engineered record to claim that. But no, that,
0: that counts. Congrats, man. That's uh, that's awesome.
1: Thanks. Um, like I said, I had a I had a feeling they might just because their last one won, and once seems like once you're in the once you're on their radar you know you, there's a lot of repeat names you keep seeing for these awards for better or worse so
0: yeah it, there is a lot of repeats yeah that's dope man that's awesome uh so last two questions which you know maybe you've prepared for maybe you haven't was there a time in your career that you chose to redefine what success meant to you
1: yeah i did think about that cuz you put it on the list and it's honestly pretty recently i mean the pandemic was obviously terrible for a lot of people but leading up to it. And as it hit, I mean, I just had so much work coming in and so much time to do it and all this stuff where it's like redefining success. I, I kind of felt this way, you know, my wife and I have gone on a few vacations in the last year or two. And for one of the first times in my life, I like feel like I can go take a week or two off from the studio and not worry about a couple things, not worry about the projects I might miss because it needs to be done tomorrow you know 10 years ago that used to kill me if i was going to be gone for a week and i miss out on something cuz yeah. for various reasons and also just financially like you know being in a comfortable spot where i don't care if i don't work for 2 weeks you know i can relax and enjoy the time and not worry about like the lack of you know cash flow and following up for, for payments and things like that you know I, I, and that's more of a recent thing where i can finally go take little breaks from the studio and and relax a little more and not worry about if I'm going to run out of money while I'm gone or, you know, just that lapse in work. And, and then it got to a point where I didn't have to worry about that as much, but I would worry about like just cramming to get everything done in time before we go. And then when we get it back, just like also being crammed, you know, trying to play catch up. So getting in a more comfortable state to take a little bit of time off, I think has felt like a, a successful thing to be able to do you know and in general just to be able to work on music every day is is a success in my opinion i mean i've been known to have some hot takes on twitter about things when when something comes up and i I need to get better about that but i really do appreciate the chance to work on music every you know people trust me to basically be the last person to touch their music before it enters the world is something i don't take lightly and i appreciate the chance to do it and i'm very lucky ironically um when i was having lunch before we did this interview there was a truck parked in front of me that said jack's maintenance and i didn't even know they were down here but i used to work for jack's maintenance like right after high school and basically they clean office buildings and stuff and um i felt really thankful that i i did that for a little while and that i can do something that i enjoy a lot more than cleaning offices after hours so anyways the, long story short just to be able to work on music every day and also now to be able to take little breaks from it and come back refreshed and without the stresses that I used to have when when you're a younger business and things like that
0: that's awesome yeah the uh it's like fear of missing out when you're about to go on vacation or or like fear of letting your clients down if you leave and there's like one thing that needs to get done I fight that one I so I feel feel you on that that's um It feels good when you can take a vacation and not worry about it. So last question before we go, what is your current biggest goal and what is the next smallest step you're going to take to go towards
1: it? Well, it kind of ties into what I was saying about being able to take time off. You know, when I was younger, I could do seven days a week, 15 hour days. I loved it. I didn't get tired. I didn't think twice about it. And I never even saw this coming, but as I am getting older, I'm in my early 40s now. I am enjoying taking at least one day off a weekend sometimes two. So my goal is to get better at actually sticking to that cuz you know, I'm at a point now where I don't need to work 7 days a week for cash flow reasons and I need to get better about you know I forget which engineer said this but there's no audio emergencies like if someone gets it on a <laughs> if someone gets it on a Monday instead of a Saturday or a Sunday probably no one's going to die. So I need to get better about you know just Having a more reasonable schedule of like not necessarily bankers hours, but you know not having to feel like everything's always on fire. Yeah, and you know that I could take a little time off because to get back to the question, you know, taking time off not just to rest but also to take care of yourself. You know, exercise, gym. Yeah, you know, a a little mental reset. Someday I I would actually like to get into meditation. Everyone that seems to do the TM form of meditation. Speaks highly of it. Something I would actually like to do, but of course, you know, you have to carve out time. Yeah, which t- kind of ties into everything. So that's kind of my next goal. Is now that you know I have a really healthy client base and I have the room that I want, I feel everything's in a great place. Now I need to kind of invest more time back in myself for for health reasons. Because when you're 40, you can't just eat anything you want all day. It catches up with you. It's not a cliche or a, a myth or anything. It's I'm I'm feeling it firsthand so I need to spend more time you know not sitting in a chair Yeah, Uh, I need to spend more time moving around and getting fresh air and so yeah my goal is to just have a better work life balance and um, because as you get older I swear you know the years go by so much faster so you know if I don't do something now I'm going to be 50 and wish you know wonder where all that time went so I need to I need to make a clear intention of you know finding that better balance
0: Yeah. The health habits are, I feel like, the hardest to develop, you know, working out or stretching or whatever. I tried meditation for like two or three months this year, 2022, because this podcast will come out in 2023. But uh, it kind of stressed me out (laughs) because I knew I wasn't doing it right. And I was like, I could feel my mind wandering. And I'm like, my mind's wandering. I need to like focus myself. And I just felt like every time I was done, I was like stressed about screwing up my meditation. I was like, fuck, I don't, I can't do this anymore.
1: (laughs) So you're overthinking it. Yeah, I don't know. I could see that happening to me too. So again, it's something I've never tried, but you know, I've listened to a few podcasts of other engineers and they they say it's been great for them. So people swear
0: by it. I know a lot of people that love it. So,
1: but again, that kind of ties into not being stressed out about, you know, if what's going to happen if you, shut off your phone for an hour or two and the rest of the world, you know, that's... And then kind of to go back into some advice stuff before we quit, I mean, also, I feel like if you ever are feeling like you're you're slow and no one's calling you, I swear if you book a vacation or make any plans to, like, leave the radius of your studio, you're going to get calls to do this or that, like, right away, it's going to be an emergency, you know. So it's almost weird how that kind of works because, you know, thankfully, I don't really get slow, but there have been times where you know, maybe I've just gotten too caught up because I know I'm going on a trip where it's like, you know, you feel like no projects are coming in, maybe my career's over, and then you decide to go do something different. And that's when the phone, the emails start coming and the texts and the calls. So obviously I can't guarantee that, but I feel like in a weird way, that's that tends to happen more than one might think.
0: Oh, all the time. And it is funny. It's like if nobody calls for like, 32 hours, everybody in the music industry thinks that their career is over. (laughs) It's like you haven't even had a day off yet and people are losing their mind.
1: (laughs) And that's the other thing I I should have mentioned in the what what do you want to get better at part is is knowing that because, you know, thankfully the dips are not so deep anymore, but, you know, there are times where I'm like, oh, my project list is getting, I haven't seen it this small in a long time, like what's going on here? And then, you know, sure enough, it just explodes. So enjoy that. Enjoy those kind of periods when no one's bombarding your email inbox because if you're doing great work and being you know nice to people and being a pleasure to work with you know if people are going to come back you know it's not going to just change overnight it could be a gradual change as you get older and age out and people that you know aren't making music anymore but i don't think anything's going to happen in 32 hours you know you should just enjoy that enjoy that time while you can because it's gonna it usually changes back
0: i agree couldn't agree more Justin, it's been awesome. It's a good hang. I really enjoyed it. Please tell people where they can find you on the internets, on the socials, wherever you want.
1: Yeah, if you go to mysteryroommastering.com, that has links to like little icons for all the social media places that I am. There's also a link tree that I think I sent to you before this that you can probably put in the show notes that the link tree goes to all my social media pages, some articles I've written. Um, I have a website for helping people with WaveLab, the mastering software so cool. there's that website it's called wavelabhelp.com but mysteryroommastering.com is the main one um, Justin Carl Perkins there's not much there but it has just more personal stuff and not so much mastering stuff but I would say the link tree probably covers everything that you might want to find
0: awesome I'll make sure that's in the show notes and uh, yeah man this is awesome I'll let you get back to your day I know you got a record to finish
1: yeah well it was great to chat with you I like to do these from time to time and it's been a while so it was great to chat with you and thanks for doing such a great podcast that helps me, you know, fill some of my time at the gym and driving and whatnot.
0: Well, thanks for participating in that podcast. I'll uh, we'll we'll keep in touch, man. I'll I'll talk to you soon.
1: All right. Have a good afternoon.
0: That's it for episode 85. Thanks to Justin Perkins for coming on the show and hanging out with us. Thank you to all of you for listening. If you've been enjoying the show or you're a longtime listener and you've never left a review or haven't subscribed to the YouTube, please do so. I would greatly appreciate it. And remember, word of mouth sharing is the best way to grow the show. So anywhere you'd like to share with a friend or social media is just, I would appreciate it so much. And finally, thanks to Stephen Boyd for the audio edit on this one. You crushed it as usual. And I will see all of y'all next time.